Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. Today we're going to be continuing our study in an Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. Um, but before we do, just want to remind everyone, um, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. We update that weekly. Um, we have some good articles spanning church history, apologetics, um, Christian living, and theology. Um, and also follow us on our social media uh, platforms. You can see there at the bottom our Twitter and Facebook handles. So give us a shout. Um, we'd appreciate it. And with that, I'll hand it over to Sean to get us started into our topic today. All right. So we are going to uh, start um, the actual questions of an Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. Um, and with that, I'll just jump into the first one. Uh, question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And I got to say, that's a that's a wonderful opening right there. Um, and uh, it's very inspiring um, and obviously all true that, yes, uh, this is our only comfort. Um, we might go through trials and tribulations and there's nothing in it um, that seems good, except in the fact, the knowledge that uh, I have something far better waiting on the other end, that uh, the tribulations of this life aren't worthy to compare to uh, and that I am uh, glorifying God in this, the only uh, thing that's truly good in this life. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And we see this. Um, but what's interesting is that Hercules Collins starts with man's misery. It's like he's trying to set this kind of a gospel stage, I guess. Like here's man's condition. And then um, he'll move on into who God is and our redemption later. Uh, but kind of setting the stage for where man stands before God. Um, but it seems here he's, he's talking about these ultimate, um, and these ultimate comforts that we have in Christ and in God. What is that which drives us and leads us on in our in our lives? And it's uh, our salvation in Him and our comfort is in Him. Uh, we see this in First Thessalonians five ten. For He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Uh, in the context here, Paul's actually giving comforting words to Christians, telling them. Uh, what things are to share with those who um, are have had loved ones that have passed away, you know, that they are to strengthen one another with these words. So the comfort that we have in our life and in our death is Jesus Christ, knowing that he died for us and that we will be together with him. And that leads us on uh, through life. And we also see this in uh, Romans 14, 8. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Um, so our grounding is in him, our rest is in Christ, and this is where we find um, our peace. 1 John 3, 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And finally, John six thirty nine, 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. So those who Jesus saves will be um, raised up on the last day and will be wrought to glory. So we can take great comfort in that as we move through this life. And now moving on to question two. How many things are necessary for you to know that enjoying this comfort you may live and die happily? And Collins here lays out uh, three different things. He said, uh, answer three. The first, what is the greatness of my sin and misery? The second, how I am delivered from all sin and misery. The third, what thanks I owe to God for this delivery. Um, so he's basically laying, again, following that theme of ultimates here. What are those ultimate things that we find comfort in, um, in God? That we are sinful, and that leads us to a great Savior, that we are delivered from that sin, and that we give thanks to God for those things that are owed. And I think that kind of lays out the, and Sean and I were talking about this yesterday, but um, I think that kind of lays out the core aspects of what we believe in, in our ground, um, in our faith uh, to God. Anything you yeah. want to add to that, Sean? I was just going to bring out, um, we were talking about the th basically the third aspect of this. Um, the first two are obvious. Um, uh, how great my sin and misery is. You need that as a background to understand why you need to be saved. And then how great a salvation it is. And then second, how I'm set free from my sins and misery. Um, you need to know that in order to be joyful. But the third is a little bit interesting. Um, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Uh, why, why explicitly bringing out the uh, the thanks for God. And um, ultimately, if you do recognize that God is the highest good, higher than any good in serving yourself, that um, giving him thanks uh, will actually give you more joy than um, self being self-serving because there's an objective reality that he is better. Mm, yeah, and that kind of uh, that transcends this worldly definition of, of happiness that we see in our day and age, this nat this material naturalism, the here and the now, um, that we can rest in that. All right, moving on to question three. All right. From uh, question three, from what source do you know your misery? And the uh, answer is from the law of God. Um, and um, this is fairly straightforward. I don't know how many people would want to contest that, at least from a supposed Christian worldview. Obviously, it's the law of God that uh, lets us know that we're in trouble. Um, without that, um, we would not have knowledge of sin. Uh, for Without the law, there is no knowledge of sin. Um, so it's the law that lets us know that we are in trouble. Yep, we see this in Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So the law shows us where we have fallen, shows us how far we have fallen. Um, and this is right after Paul had just given out that scathing um, uh, view of man, that man is not good, there is none righteous, no, not one. Um, and, be, and that's in light of God's law. And Jews and Gentiles are both condemned under that same law. So... This is where we find our brokenness and our um, knowledge of where we stand before God, uh, legally speaking, with regards to his law. And that's why, and, and he'll go on to talk about this later, but that's why we need Jesus Christ as our 
mediator and as the one who justifies us with his righteousness, his passive and active obedience. Um, we also see in Romans 5.20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So uh, the law was, again, it, it's the same principle seen in 3.20. It showed where the trespass was. You can't know what you did wrong without knowing what you're supposed to do right. So in comparing ourselves to God's law, we see where we have fallen. We've missed that mark that God has uh, given for us to follow. Anything else you want to add to that, Sean? No, I think that's good. All right. All right, question four. What does the law of God require of us? Now, this is, it, you know, talking about the law of God, it's important that this is laid out because, like we said, the law is showing us our sin. And if we're going to, and I know our pastor has talked about this before, you can't know the good you can't really understand or appreciate the good news without the bad news. You know, the bad news is we've broken God's law. And I think that's where Hercules Collins is going and showing us our state. It's not just, you know, we're sinful and, and that's it. It's we're sinful because God has laid out his law and we are not meeting that mark that he has given. And then he'll lead into the good news. But what does the law of God require of us? Question four. That which summarily teaches us Matthew 22, 37 through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. And he basically just quoted Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Um, and I wasn't able to put it all in here, but Jesus, I love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So that's what the law of God requires of us. And this is really what the, what we would call the two tables of the law. You have the law of uh, the first section of the law, which shows how we're to love God in terms of our vertical relationship. And then we have the second table of the law, which lays out how we're to love our neighbor, which ultimately does point back to loving God, but it's uh, more, it's focused horizontally. So we love God, we love neighbor. And that sums up what the law is. And this is really, this really goes back to, um, you know, what James says, if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken them all because um, you fundamentally violated those two principles, primarily loving God. Um, and if you've listened to James Dolezal speak at the uh, Reformation Bible College at their winter conference uh, this week, he talked about that. It's very, very good. Um, but, you know, if you break the law, you've broken it all because you fundamentally undermined the what the law stands for which is ultimately to love god so if you uh you know steal from your neighbor you're not only uh hating your neighbor but you're also not obeying god so you've broken the spirit of the law and therefore broken it all because we're all tied and held together with that principle so it's uh it's very important we understand the law of god in that way um to help us to see our own misery and um and our great need yeah and i do really want to hammer that home because for most of the unbelieving world they seem to view it as um okay well i, I didn't keep all the commandments but i only really yep. need to keep some um and if you're seeking to be justified by that that is you're you're you are in serious trouble you will not be justified by that because the law requires perfect perpetual obedience 
Um, if you're if you're going to be justified by it, um, you need to keep it all perfectly. Um, Dan already read from uh, James chapter uh, two, but I wanted to read from actually uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, this is Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty six. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. So um, God is telling the Israelites that uh, you're going to be cursed if you don't keep every single word in this law. And um, unless we get some sort of hyper-dispensationalist that says that doesn't apply in a New Testament context, um, Paul brings it up in Galatians. Um, and obviously he's talking to the Galatians who are um, Gentiles. So if the Gentiles were to be justified, they would need to do so by keeping the law perfectly. And they're, they're not able to do that. And that is absolutely crucial. Um, if you break one part of the law, it is still a sin against a God who's worthy of our perfect perpetual obedience. Um, and that sin is worthy of death. So um, we will get into... Um, the gospel a little bit further, but for anyone seeking to be right with God by their law keeping, if you have not done it perfectly, you will not um, succeed. Yeah, that's right. And and it even goes more than just the outward obedience to the yes. law. You know, okay, I haven't killed someone. Our pastor actually preached on this this last Sunday. You know, okay, I might not have physically killed somebody, but if you've hated them in your heart or harbored unrighteous anger, you have murdered them in your heart. Um, and that's a violation of that commandment. So the, the standard is so high. I mean, it's absolute perfection, but not only outwardly, but also inwardly. Um, so have fun being justified by that very, very high standard um, that we're to keep. All right, question All right. five. I think that's you, Dan. Oh, okay. Oh, I read four. Oh, you did? All right, never yep. mind. Let's see. You were up. Um, are, uh, question five. Are you able to keep all of these things perfectly? A, no. By nature, I am prone to the hatred of God and of my neighbors. Um, so if you've been on this, uh, if you've been following us for any uh, amount of time, you'll, you'll know that we're Calvinists, and we believe that um, by, we've inherited a corrupt nature from our forefather, Adam, um, and because of this, we are sinners by birth, by nature. Um, if you want a, a good example of where that manifests itself in the Bible, uh, Romans 5, the end of the chapter, has a breakdown of how we come to inherit that uh, sin nature. But yes, so we're not able to keep these things perfectly. Um, we're sinners by nature. And um as this was actually not a proof text uh, in the catechism, but I wanted to read it anyway. It's, um, let's see where I have that. Uh, James chapter three, and I'll start actually at verse two. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth, or listeth. 
Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So, that, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Um, for every kind of beast and of every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So mm. this is very clear that all men um, w uh, sin via their tongue and they can't even control it. They're, it's not mm. possible. Yep. Yep. And uh, I think that just shows how far we really have fallen in our nature. Um, and we referenced actually this passage earlier, uh, part of it anyways. Romans 3, 10 through 11, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. This is who we are before we are saved. Our entire being is bent on sin. We love that which is evil. We have no desire to do that which is good. Um and it's so corrupt that even the outwardly good works that we do are evil in God's sight, apart from uh, being saved, because we do not do them with the proper heart attitude and ultimately because of our nature. So that's how far we have fallen. Uh, Romans 8, 7 through 8. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Paul ties back the ability to do that which is good with their standing before God, those who are in the flesh, those who by nature are children of wrath, those who are walking according to uh, the prince of the power of the air. And so um, you don't even have the ability to do that which is good. And I know there are those who will say that um, we do have that ability, but you know we would, uh, we would reject that, that we are so far uh, fallen that we can't believe upon the gospel without God's regenerating work. Um, yes, faith is a good work, regardless of what other people say. It, it's not some work that's floating out in the gray area somewhere. It has nothing to do with the law of God or has nothing to do with morality. It is a good work that is pleasing to God and therefore can only be done by someone who is regenerated, who is in the spirit. Because um, those who are in the flesh cannot do that which is pleasing to God. So we have to be very careful to have a proper view of sin, a proper view of God's law, and a proper view of man. Otherwise, we aren't going to have a proper view of how faith works in the heart. So uh, this is our standing before God, before we are saved. Uh, it's very important to, to remember that. Um, now, the next question here is interesting um, that Hercules Collins takes. It's almost like he's playing Paul, you know, where Paul likes to ask these rhetorical questions and anticipates people's, uh, um, the fallen man's responses to his questions. So question six, did God then make man so wicked and perverse? Answer, not so. He made him good and in his own image, endowing him with true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God, his creator, and heartily love him and live with him blessed forever and to laud and magnify him. So basically what Collins is saying here is that evil does not come from God, that in man's original state, he was um, sinless, but he chose to sin. Um, we see this, prince, uh, this principle laid out, Genesis 131, God saw that all he had made and it was very good. 
and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God's creation is good. God did not make man sinful. It, sin is not inherent in creation. Uh, that's something that appends itself to creation. It's a corruption of that which is good. It is not something that is, um, you know, inherent in creation. We aren't Gnostics. We don't believe that God creation is bad, spiritual is good. We reject that. Um, so God did not create man evil. Man was created in God's image so that he reflects God in morality to some extent. He can reason, he can think, he's distinguished from the animals and the rest of creation in a special way. Um, so God created the God created man good. Um, so that's very important to understand as we talk about you know the origin of evil, authorship of evil, um, and, and how sin entered into the world. It did not start with God. God is not the author of sin. He did not create it. It is not inherent in his creation. Um, and then the next question uh, kind of talks about its origin a little bit. Question seven. From what source does the wickedness of man's nature arise? Answer. From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve. For this reason, our nature is so corrupt and we are all conceived and born in sin. And uh, through the proof texts for this uh, one, uh, Romans uh, 5, 12, and 18 through 19 are brought up, which I was uh, alluding to earlier. Um, yeah. Uh, did you have anything about that, Dan? Um, yeah, I'll just hit on the verses here. Uh, 5, 12, Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sin. So... There's this idea of federal headship being laid out here in, in Romans 5, representativeness uh, through two different people. Through, one through Adam, he represents all the human race with regards to um, being the first one who's created. He was set up as kind of a, in a priestly role, an administrative role over the earth, and as the father of all mankind. Um, and then you have Christ who's being set up as the father, quote unquote, of those who are to be saved um, so we see this federal headship. So in Adam's sin, that sin was inherent to his posterity because he represented his posterity before God. Um, and because of that, we have inherited this sin nature. Um, and we see this also in, in verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So again, you see this federal headship. One Adam's act brought the human race low through his um, through his sinful action of eating the fruit and disobeying God, and through Christ's action, we are justified and are saved. Um, and what's interesting is people who deny um, original sin but will accept federal headship in Christ seems very inconsistent. Um, so you'll accept all the benefits that come from being united with Christ, which we would say yes and amen to. You know, we receive his righteousness, we receive his resurrection, we receive his work by being united to him through faith. But then they'll throw out any type of federal headship as it relates to um, to Adam, which I find very interesting. And I think you might have mentioned this, Sean, in your Sunday school class. Uh, when yeah, you did. I think I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's it seems very inconsistent. Um, we also see this laid out. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, basically, you have to say um, benefit, or only benefits can be transferred, not um, demerits, essentially. But in federal headship, in federal representation, I don't know quite how that would work. Either you're, you're representative or you're not. It's not that only benefits trans, uh, transfer. 
Um, right. And um, this isn't quite federal headship, but um, I think it's a, a good example. Nobody complains when, um, uh, say, you're watching football and somebody on the team um, does something that uh, causes a penalty and the whole team gets penalized. Nobody complains or thinks that un that's unjust. Why? Well, because the team is in a relationship where that's that's something that's expected because they're in that relationship. The whole team is penalized. Um, that's not obviously the same exact thing as federal headship, but it, it shows you that um, we're okay with the idea that um, based on the relationship we're in, that uh, merits or um, positive things can be applied to everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that didn't work for Adam, it wouldn't work for those who are in Christ either. It they're both it's the same principle that's being applied to both places. Uh, we also see this in uh, Psalm fifty-one five. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Um, and there are those who will, I think, have mistakenly taken this passage to think that um, David was saying that his mother conceived him sinfully, and he's saying uh, that he is sinful from the time he was born. Uh, that That is not something that you grow into. There's no age of accountability. You are sinful from the time you were born. And this goes back to Romans 5, where you have inherited through our federal head, Adam, that sinful nature, and then live out your sin as a result of that. All right, question eight. Are we so corrupt that we are not able to do well, um, are not at all able to do well, are prone to all vice? And I think I, I mistyped that there. Um, and are prone to all vice. Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier with regards to um, our sinful state. Romans 3 um, could be applied here. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Um, so this shows the radical nature of, of our sin, that every thought of man's heart is bent towards sin apart from God saving him. Every single aspect of it. Um, it and this is, I think, the inconsistency that we see with like our provisionist friends who don't see the radical nature of our sin um, as the Bible lays it out. And that's important because if, if you aren't as radically depraved as, um, as the scriptures say, then that means that we have the ability to do that which is good in the eyes of God in some way, right? Um, and that's inching closer to Pelagianism um, once you start uh, talking like that. So you have to be very careful how you talk about man and his state before God. Um, it, our, we are radically depraved to the point where... Even those, like we said earlier, those even those good things that you do outwardly apart from God are sinful um, in some sense. Um, so he's basically rehashing some of the themes that we saw before with regards to man. Anything else, Sean, for that? Um, I'll just point people to a, a blog article I wrote actually on uh, Genesis oh, yeah. 6-5 saying those Genesis 6 um uh, prove total depravity, something to the effect of that. Um, because you'll see a lot of people trying to make the argument that, well, this was post-flood and somehow man was at his evilest then, and this isn't representative of all humanity. But I would say that based on uh, Genesis, I believe it's 821, 
which basically is a hearkening back to Genesis 6-5, but it's after the flood and saying the same thing as current then, that that's not a tenable um, interpretation of Genesis 6-5. Yeah. Yep. All right. Question nine. Was that me? Yep. Okay. Uh, does not God then do injury to man who in the law requires that of him which he is not able to perform? Answer, no. God made man such a one as he might perform it, but man, by the impulsion of the devil and his own stubbornness, braved himself and all his posterity of those divine graces. Um, so this this is important because as Calvinists, we're, all, we're often accused of saying that, well, because in a sense man is unable to do, um, do something, um, to do what is good, that God really can't hold us accountable. It would be the equivalent of holding a small child um, accountable for not being able to uh, make a, a slam dunk on the basketball court. It just it doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that really gets into the distinction of a, um, how you're using the word able there, because obviously there's a sense in which we are able. There's not a single lie I've told in my entire life that I wasn't able to not do it in a sense but because of my nature because it's corrupt i did it um it's it's i was not willing to do it i'm not able because i'm not willing not because i'm literally not able if that makes uh, sense there yeah yeah we you know we are agents as human beings or as some seem to assert our agency is not canceled because of the sovereignty of god or his providence um, we do have the ability to make choices, but like you said, our will is what binds us um, going back to our sinful nature. And we've already established that our wills are bound to sin. Our, um, we love sin. We don't want to leave it. It's not like God is twisting our arm to do that, which is sinful. When we really want to do that, which is good. That, no, that's not the case. We sin because we want to sin every single time. Um, so we have to be, and there are you know certain levels of um I guess intent, you might sin unintentionally, but there's still the will being enacted there. Um, so yes, we sin because we want to. It's very, yeah. very important. It's the difference between um, not being able to, um, I don't know, run, run, a, run a mile in uh, five minutes and uh, me not being able to um, eat something disgusting I don't like. Um, it's not that I'm physically not able to do it. It's just that I don't want to, and therefore I'll eat something else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting people who make these arguments that, well, God has given us commandments in his word. So therefore that implies we can keep them. Um, one that goes flat out against what we've read already in scripture about man's ability to do that, which is good in the flesh. But um, what about the commandments that say we're to be perfect as God is perfect? Are you able to be perfect? God commands it. Uh, no, you're not able to do that. So that argument really doesn't hold. And it, it, what's funny, it doesn't hold on the core commandments that God has given us for to obey, loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, being perfect as he is perfect. We can't even do that, let alone all the specific commandments that you claim that we have the ability to obey because he commanded us uh, to do them. Uh, it's very inconsistent. And it opens the door up for sinless perfectionism, I think. If you're able to do you know, God's commandments in some way on your own, uh, you know, on your own merit, 
that's inherent in you to do it. Uh, now you have the ability to potentially be perfect or actually please God um, because uh, you've given yourself that ability or dual ability as we heard Eric Hernandez talk about. Uh, so it's very, you know, it's, it's dangerous stuff. You have to be very careful with that type of thinking. All right, going into question 10. Does God leave this stubbornness and falling away of man unpunished? Answer, no, he is angry in a most dreadful manner for the sins wherein we are born and which we ourselves commit. In a most just judgment, he punishes them in present and everlasting punishments as he pronounces, cursed is he that does not conform to all the words of this law to do them. So God cannot leave sin unanswered. And that's what's being discussed here. And then he's quoting from Deuteronomy uh, 7.26, Curses anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. So if we do not obey God's law, you are under a curse, and the punishment for sin is death. As Romans chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 6, says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So um, God must punish sin. He is just. Um, he would not be a righteous, holy God if he did not punish sin um, based on what his law requires. God does not wink at sin. God does not uh, let people off because they had good behavior or whatnot. He must punish sin. Uh, I do want to make a correction there. I believe it's Deuteronomy 27, 26 rather than uh, 7, 26. But, um, oh, you're right. I apologize. <laughs> no problem. My bad. Um, Typo. Um, yeah, no. Um, and ultimately, if we are in our right minds and thinking, um, we don't want a God that is tolerant of sin or is somehow unjust in his nature to live under an unjust God uh, would not be a good thing. Um, we might want it in our sinfulness uh, so that we would not get punished. But ultimately, that's um, self-defeating because if God will pardon our sins, um unjustly he'll pardon others sins unjustly um and ultimately we don't want to live in that sort of world if you're a christian you want the righteous god the god that is perfect in his righteousness um that um we could admire that god for all eternity because he's worthy of it mm. yep that's exactly right all right question 11 question 11 is not god therefore merciful Answer, yes, very much so. He is merciful, but he is also just. Wherefore, his justice requires that the same which is committed against the divine majesty of God should also be recompensed with extreme, that is, everlasting punishment, both in body and soul. Um, so similar to what we were talking before, um, uh, yes, God is, is righteous, and that's why he will, he will do this. Um, uh, you will hear people bring up a lot when you're trying to witness to them with the law oh but god's merciful god's merciful <laughs> and it is true god is merciful but that's not to say that um he's not also just as if the mercy canceled out the the justice of god um he's just because he's provided a way of escape through his son uh, whoever believes in the son will be saved because um uh, Jesus Christ took upon himself our sin and um, and the, I should say the punishment for our sin. So he's paid for our punishment 
And it, by faith, if we are in him, we are accredited with his righteousness. So therefore, we can enter into the gates of heaven because legally we have uh, perfect righteousness account, uh, accredited to us, even if we um, ourselves have not lived that way. And that is the only way uh, that we will be saved. Yep, yep. It must be based on God's justice. Uh, we see this laid out clearly um, with regard to God punishing sin in Psalm 5, 4 through 7. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house in reverence. I bow down toward your holy temple. So David was able to come and meet God in his temple. And the only reason that people were able to stand before God was due to the proper sacrifices that had to be made to atone for their sins and deal with those things. Um, and so that led to David's worship um, with regards to him being saved and him being able to worship God, even though he hates sin and him realizing that he was a sinner. Um, we also see this principle laid out, Exodus 34, 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So God is merciful and loving, but as Sean said, it's not based on just a arbitrary love. Like, okay, yeah, I know you sinned. I'll just go ahead and, you know, I'll just let you in. It doesn't matter. No, it has to be based on his law being met. And we will get into this later, but this is what um, really the gospel points to. We can't keep God's law, but God kept it for us in uh, Christ did. And that righteousness is then accredited to our account when we believe by faith. As so we're treated as if we kept God's law perfectly. We're declared actually not guilty. And that Christ mediates on our behalf and God sees Christ on us. And we are able to enter into uh, his presence because of that. That's where that mercy flows from. Um, it's not a, a universal love for all people. Um, just based on some arbitrary um, winking of the eye at sin. It's his love for his people is based on uh, the work that Christ did. Um, so that's where we'll leave today. Um, and as we go through this, and we're not going to be hitting this entire book, but uh, we should be talking about the work that Christ did, and we can talk more about that later, of what Christ did, who his work applies to, the nature of the atonement, um, but that will be for another day. But with that, we thank you for joining us today. And um, Lord willing, we'll be back next week. We, we, I know we did kind of an off schedule episode today. Um, I have some things going on this weekend, so it was best to do it today. But Lord willing, we should be back next Saturday to continue on in the catechism. And with that, thank you for joining us today. God bless you all.